We're going to take a, uh, a, a break from our study of 1 John to look at the topic of water baptism from a biblical perspective. So our goal this morning is to, is to look into God's Word, to look at what God's Word teaches us regarding Christian water baptism. And I, I specify that it, uh, for an important reason. First of all, I say Christian because we're talking about the ordinance that the Lord Jesus Himself commanded and initiated. We're not here to learn about Jewish baptism, Hindu baptism, or baptism of any other religion. We're here to learn about Christian baptism, about biblical baptism. And I also want to specify that this morning's lesson will be about water baptism, because we need to differentiate between water baptism and spirit baptism. There's much confusion that comes into uh, sermons when that distinction is is not realized and taught clearly. Spirit baptism in, in our period of history that we live in occurs at the moment of salvation. I think a helpful and biblical definition of spirit baptism is provided by Paul Inns in the Moody Handbook of Theology. He says this, he defines spirit baptism as, quote, the work of the Holy Spirit in placing the believer into union with Christ as the head and with other believers as the body of Christ. That's the work of the Holy Spirit in placing the believer into union with Christ as the head and with other believers as the body of Christ. Now, it's not my intent this morning to, to deal with the topic of spirit baptism other than highlighting the fact that water baptism flows from spirit baptism. One needs to be baptized by the Spirit to have a legitimate claim on water baptism. If you want to know about, more about spirit baptism, I preached a sermon on this uh, about three years ago. If you prefer to read and study that way, then pick up a copy of the Systematic Theology uh, Biblical Doctrine and read about spirit baptism in that. This morning, when I talk about baptism, and you simply use the word baptism, I am referring to Christian water baptism as distinct from other religions and as distinct from the baptism of the Holy Spirit. Now, it is very easy for uh, us as, as human beings to approach the topic of, of water baptism with our own preconceived notions and ideas because of uh, the things that we've seen or experienced, churches we've attended. And, and while I, tr- I think that it's true on, on every, every topic we could study, we could say that it's, it's very easy to bring in our own preconceived ideas. On, on the issue of baptism, I think it's a little, little more easy to, to bring those in because of what we've experienced and because of the huge doctrinal differences from church to church. Uh, regarding the meaning, the mode, and the practice of baptism. And this has led to a general lack of clarity amongst, uh, say, evangelicals regarding baptism. So it's, it's my goal this morning to help restore some clarity on the Bible's teaching about baptism and, and to, to help us to understand what the Lord has commanded and what the Lord expects of us. And to guide us through our study this morning, we're going to ask a series of six crucial questions about baptism that I think answered, are answered clear enough in Scripture that we can clearly understand what, what God intends for us to understand about baptism and practice it. So we'll just kind of march through these. Some will take longer than others, be more developed than others, and I will not be able to be exhaustive with many of these, but uh, hopefully will give you an idea of the clarity that Scripture 
provides about the issue of baptism. So looking at the questions about baptism, the first one, and we'll just start with some, with some simpler ones that are very clear and move to, to some ones that take more time to develop and understand. The first question is this, why is baptism important? Why is baptism important? Because there are many churches, I don't know about many, but there are churches today who downplay baptism altogether. They don't uh, practice it, and um, they, there's not much clear teaching about it. And even those churches that do teach it, there is a, there is a um, I would say, a de-emphasis on baptism. And the, and the reason that I say that is because in today's churches, there are many believers who are unbaptized. Right? Perhaps they were um, sprinkled as an infant, but I'll argue later that's not Christian baptism. Um, but there's many people today who just are believers, but aren't baptized. Right? But why is baptism important? Well, I think clearly we can see this. So if you want to turn there, this is a passage that we referred to at, s- at several points, but in Matthew 28. So my, my argument goes like this. Why is baptism important? Baptism is important because Christ, Jesus himself, instituted it. Now, I know there's a whole history of washings um, and that are in the Old Testament. We won't take time to go look at all these. And it, somewhat, John the Baptist built on that idea. But when Christ commanded that his believers be uh, baptized, he was doing something slightly differently than all those others. All those others, including the baptism of John the Baptist, were a, a baptism of repentance, simply repentance. Not that that's unimportant, but it was a baptism of repentance. Jesus' baptism, when he initiated, was also a baptism of repentance, but it went further. It is a baptism, as which we'll see is, um, allows the believer the opportunity to publicly profess faith, to identify with uh, Jesus Christ. So we'll, we'll, see, we'll develop that more in a little while. But I want you to see, again, just, just simply from Matthew 28, um, and we'll look at verses uh, 18 to 20. We'll just read those together, refresh our mind. I know they're familiar to us, but uh, I think it's good to read it. So those verses go like this. And Jesus came up and spoke to them, and is speaking to his disciples, saying, All authority has been given to me in heaven and on earth. Go, therefore, and make disciples of all the nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I have commanded you. And, lo, I am with you always, even to the end of the age. Again, we'll come back to this verse on some other points. But I, but I simply want you to see here that Jesus commanded baptism to be practiced. And he commands that those who are his disciples be baptized. So those are just some, some key observations from this text. That Jesus commanded it, and that he commanded it of his disciples. And we'll return, like I said, we'll return to that. So baptism is important primarily because Jesus instituted it. He commanded it. Baptism is also important because the apostles commanded it. And we see this from Acts chapter 2, verse 38. So this morning uh, will require some turning the, your pages or uh, flipping your electronic phone, whatever you do to get, to get there. Uh, Acts chapter 2, verse 38. 
which is the, really the, the first occurrence of the application of, of Christ's command in this. After Peter's um, preaching of, of a sermon on the day of Pentecost, the, the, those who heard said, asked this, Brethren, what shall we do? They heard Peter's sermon, which is given in the context prior to that. We won't take time to go develop that. But they were pierced to the heart, the scripture said, and asked, what shall we do? So this response I'm about to read comes from Peter's lips as an answer to that question. Peter said to them, repent and each of you be baptized in the name of Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of your sins and you will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. For the promise is for you and your children and for all who are far, far off, as many as our Lord, our God, will call to himself. So we'll say more about this passage later. But here I just want you to simply note that, that the apostles commanded it. So even if Jesus hadn't commanded it, through the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, the apostles commanded it. And we know from studying 1 John that it, it, true believers will listen to the apostles' teaching. We will not be disobedient to that. Being disobedient to the apostles' teaching is a sign of an unbeliever, not the sign of a, of a believer. So as, as Pastor MacArthur explains about this text, Peter was obeying Christ's command that we read in Matthew twenty-eight nineteen, And he urged the people who repented and turned to the Lord Jesus for salvation to identify through the waters of baptism with his, into Christ's death, burial, and resurrection. Again, we'll say more about Acts 2.28 in a moment. So baptism is important because it was instituted and commanded by Jesus. It was commanded and practiced by the apostles. Baptism is also important because it was practiced by the other church. People submitted themselves to this. If we just continue reading in that context, Acts 2, look at verse 41. So then those who had received his word were baptized, and that day there were added about 3,000 souls. And thence is the beginning of the church. All right, you see that formed. So just understand that, 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 that baptism is not something that we can write off as unimportant or ignore as a, as a believer. Jesus and his apostles commanded believers to be baptized, and the example of the early church is that they practiced this. And we see many occurrences and illustrations of this in, in, through the, um, the acts of the apostles as they're given to us. So that's the first question. It, why is baptism important? Because it's commanded of us by God, by the apostles, and we're given that example by the church. So let's look at the second question. Who should be baptized? Who should be baptized? And this I'll answer just succinctly at first and then develop that. Those who, be, who should be baptized are those who believe in Jesus Christ. Throughout the New Testament, in every instance, every instance, of Christian baptism, the people who get baptized are those who profess to believe the gospel of Jesus Christ and you know, repent of sins. In other words, Christian baptism is only for disciples of Jesus Christ. Paul Enzi explains it this way. He says, only those who hear the gospel understood it, uh, understand it and respond to it through faith and repentance should be baptized, unquote. What are some biblical examples of this? Well, we notice from Christ's example or Christ's command in Matthew 28, 28 verse 19 that he tells his disciples to go make disciples. 
And, and so that's, that's really the precedence or the umbrella under which everything else uh, is, uh, flows. Peter commanded his hearers to repent and be baptized, as I mentioned. Those who, who had exercised faith in Jesus Christ. Um, we could add to that examples like in Acts chapter 8, verse 12, which tells us this in regards to people's response when they heard Philip preaching. Acts chapter 8, verse 12. But when they believed Philip... Uh, believe Philip preaching the good news about the kingdom of God and the name of Jesus Christ, they were being baptized, men and women alike. And notice that those who were baptized were those who were responding to Philip's message. The order of belief and, and repentance, sometimes those are men, both mentioned, sometimes they're simply uh, assumed and synonymous with one another, that faith and repentance uh, are, have often been described as like uh, Siamese twins or two sides of the same coin. So the order of that, that belief and repentance comes first before baptism is seen in every biblical passage dealing with Christian baptism. <clears throat> I'm just going to turn to a few examples, but I'll mention some others that you can look on your own. So let's turn to Acts 8, uh, 38. Acts eight thirty-eight, and I just want to pick up uh, pick up reading. This is the passage of the of the Ethiopian eunuch and Philip's uh, really evangelism of him. I'll pick it up in verse twenty-nine. Just to give us a little context of this. Then the Spirit said to Philip, "Go up and join this chariot." Philip ran up. And heard him reading Isaiah the prophet. That is, the eunuch was reading Isaiah the prophet. And he said to him, do you understand what you are reading? And he said, well, how could I unless someone guides me? And he invited Philip to come up and sit with him. Now the passage of scripture which he was reading was this. He was led as a sheep to slaughter and as a lamb before its shearer is silent. So he does not open his mouth. In humiliation, his judgment was taken away. Who will relate his generation? For his life is removed from the earth. The eunuch asked Philip and said, Please tell me, of whom does this prophet say this, of himself or of someone else? Then Philip opened his mouth and began, and beginning from this scripture, he preached Jesus to him. And as they went along the road, they came to some water, and the eunuch said, Look, water, what prevents me from being baptized? And Philip said, if you believe with all your heart, you may. And he answered and said, I believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God. And he ordered the chariot to stop, and they both went down into the water, Philip as well as the eunuch, and he baptized him. And when they came up out of the water, the Spirit of the Lord snatched Philip away, and the eunuch no longer saw him, but went his way rejoicing. So again, just we point out that the eunuch believed and recognized that he needed to be baptized. Obviously, there's a lot more to Philip's sermon than the details were given in Scripture here. And there's a good, there's good case to say that even verse 37 was, um, you see it kind of bracketed in your Bible. That means that it's not in the earliest text. So it was probably added later and may not be authentic to what is written. But understand that the, the eunuch believed in Christ, and that's the only reason Philip would have baptism, baptized him. We see the same example in, from Paul's life in, in a very um, graphic way in Acts chapter 9, verse 18. 
And again, I'm just going to pick up, I won't read the whole account of Paul's conversion, but verse 18 is the moment, um, really, uh, um, is the moment of his salvation. So it, it describes very graphically the moment of Paul's or Saul's salvation. It says, and immediately there fell from his eyes something like scales, and he regained his sight, and he got up and was baptized. Notice he wasn't baptized, and in the process of being baptized, his eyes were open. He believed, he was regenerated, and then he was baptized. We see another example in uh, in Lydia in Acts chapter 16. It's Acts chapter 16, verses 14 and 15. A woman named Lydia from the city of Thyatira, a seller of purple fabrics, a worshiper of God, was listening And the Lord opened her heart to respond to the things spoken by Paul. And when she and her household had been baptized, she urged us, saying, If you have judged me to be faithful to the Lord, come into my house and stay. And she prevailed upon us. So the point there is that she, her heart was opened to believe the word, and then later she was baptized. So this is true, whether we look at Acts 10 and and the Caesarean Gentiles, that is uh, Cornelius. It's true whether we look at the Philippian jailer of Acts 16, 31 to 34, or Crispus and the many of the Corinthians who believe from Acts chapter 18, verse 8. In every single circumstance, people believe and then are baptized. They are never baptized and then believe. Right? So understand that that is the example given to us in Scripture. So just thinking through some of the implications of this, answering the question, who should be baptized? Baptism is something that is to be performed only on those claiming to be disciples of Jesus Christ and give some credible testimony to their faith in him, that they believe the gospel, they've repented of their sins, that they have rejected any kind of claim to their own righteousness and see that the righteousness of Christ is the righteousness that they need to enter heaven. And the forgiveness of sins only comes through Jesus Christ. So who should be baptized? Everyone who believes the gospel and professes faith in Jesus Christ. And anyone who does not believe or does not profess faith in Christ should not be baptized. So we're looking at the, the negative statement of that. Christian baptism is reserved for only disciples of Jesus Christ. And we'll glean, we can glean from this that infants should not be baptized. Infants cannot repent of sins, understand the gospel, or express faith in Jesus Christ. So why do Christians baptize their infants? We'll look at that in a moment. But note well that the evidence from Scripture was that everyone who was baptized by the early church were all new converts. They, were, they all professed faith in Jesus Christ. Now, I just want to say here just a moment while we're talking about this, that it is an exegetical fallacy to assume that infants were baptized at, on the, at the occasions when Acts tells us that whole households were baptized. It's really an argument from silence. What can we glean from the scriptures? Well, if we look at a few of those cases where... Uh, people claim that whole households, well, the scriptures tell us that whole households were baptized. One of those is 1634. There's, there's much to be learned here if they'll just pay attention to the details. Acts chapter 16, verse 34. Um, so I'll just pick up 
Um, and just to give us a little context, pick it up at verse 30. So you know the, the story. So the jailer runs in after he hears this earthquake and sees the, the doors open, and he, and he um, runs into um, the jail. Um, I'll just pick up verse 27. When the jailer awoke and saw the prison doors open, he drew his sword and was about to kill himself, supposing that the prisoners had escaped. But Paul cried out with a loud voice, saying, Do not harm yourself, for we are all here. And he called for lights and rushed in, and, and trembling with fear, he fell down before Paul and Silas. And after he brought them out, he said, Sirs, what must I do to be saved? And they said, Believe in the Lord Jesus, and you will be saved, you and your household. And they spoke the word of the Lord to him, together with all who were in his house. And they took him that very hour of the night and washed their wounds. And immediately he was baptized, he and all his household. And he brought them into his house and set food before them and rejoiced greatly, having believed in God with his whole household. Now, a couple observations here. It says whole household. And so many scholars who believe and pastors who who hold to infant baptism look at this as, well, there must have been infants in a whole household. That was very typical. But even that argument kind of is not so rock solid, is it? If you look at our demographic of our own family, there are some families with infants, but do most of us have infants in our families, in our whole household? Most of us do not. So could have infants been included? Could have. Is that could have worthy of actually baptizing, taking up the practice of baptizing infants? Not if we continue to read that text. Listen to what it says in verse 34. Having, he, he, um, he, sorry, in verse 34, he brought them into his house and set food before them and rejoiced greatly, having believed in God with his whole household. Speaking of the Philippian jailer, he believed along with his whole household. It's not that the, that the jailer's belief caused the whole household to be saved. The text is telling us that the whole household exercised saving belief in Jesus Christ. So the whole, the whole household believed. Another text that people go to to try to, to defend infant baptism is um, in Acts chapter 10. If you want to turn there, Acts chapter 10. And this is the conversion of Cornelius, Acts chapter 10. And again, we don't have time to build the whole context, but, but the Lord very clearly called Peter to proclaim the gospel to Cornelius, who was a God-fearing Gentile. Verse 44, while Peter was still speaking these words, the Holy Spirit fell upon all those who were listening to the message All the circumcised believers, that is all the Jews who came with Peter, were amazed because the gift of the Holy Spirit had been poured out on the Gentiles also. For they were hearing them speaking with tongues and exalting God. Then Peter answered, surely no one can refuse the water for these who have been to be baptized, who have received the Holy Spirit just as we did, can he? And he ordered them to be baptized in the name of Jesus Christ. And then they asked him to stay on for a few days. So it's reasoned that because Cornelius would have had a very large household, that they were undoubtedly infants there. The problem with that argument is if we just look at, look at what the context tells us there. So, so those who were baptized were 
sorry, if I back up, those who are baptized, number one, receive the Holy Spirit. That's what we know. Because the Holy Spirit came upon them and they began speaking in tongues. Well, that phrase, speaking in tongues, legitimate as it was at that time, meant that somebody had to be capable of speaking. Infants aren't capable of speaking. So how could they possibly be speaking in tongues? They can't. And add on top of that, they received the Spirit and were speaking in tongues. And Peter's words are that, are that people repent and believe and then be baptized. So you add on the fact that Peter's the one commanding this to be done. He's not commanding that infants who have no demonstration of the Spirit, because that's why Peter said, how can we refuse these waters of baptism for those who have this demonstration of the Spirit? It was very visible that, that the Gentiles had received the Holy Spirit. Just, we can't refuse the waters of baptism for them who who had, beyond any shadow of a doubt, demonstrated the Holy Spirit. So, I would say from this text, we see that, that those who, who were baptized were those who believed, those who demonstrated some evidence of the Holy Spirit by the Spirit coming upon them and speaking in tongues. So that excludes any possibility that infants were baptized in this text. And there are other similar circumstances we could go to text after text to say that, that infants were never baptized in the New Testament. And to say so is just an argument from complete silence. Complete silence. And I'll deal a little bit more with why people want to baptize later. But understand that there is no biblical justification for infant baptism. If you doubt my words, and it's okay if you doubt in a learning sense, um, not in a lack of faith, but just from a sense of you want to make sure that I'm telling you the truth, I recommend going online and, and Googling the uh, Pastor John MacArthur and R.C. Sproul debate about baptism, which happened, I don't know, 15, 20 years ago, and go listen to it. So you have the best of the best defending infant baptism and the best of the best scholar defending believer's baptism. And just listen to the argumentation, Right? I'll just throw it out there and say that there's one who's going to make a biblical argument and the other one has no scripture to use. So listen to it, please, if you have any doubts about that at all. So, second question. Who should be baptized? Those who believe in Jesus Christ and repent of their sins. Let's move on to the third question. When should believers in Jesus Christ be baptized. Well, the, the pattern here, and I won't turn to Scripture because we've, we've already seen it, the pattern is you believe and be baptized. So the normal pattern that we glean from Scriptures is that people were baptized very soon after believing the gospel, repenting of their sins, and trusting Jesus for their salvation. There's no significant time gap between the moment of salvation and baptism. That's the normal pattern in Scripture. So the scriptures know nothing of an unbaptized follower of Christ. There are many wrong reasons for delay in baptism, and I won't seek to develop those. You can, there are many, there's several good sermons that Pastor MacArthur has done on why people delay in baptism, but I'll just summarize it by saying that people delay either because of ignorance, they're just not taught about, about baptism, confusion, that is, they were baptized as an infant or perhaps as a, as a young child and, and um, not certain whether they were really baptized as a believer or not and how to wrestle with that. Uh, but sometimes it comes down to pride that they just uh, don't want to be uh, baptized. 
uh, as an adult, or they don't want to publicly confess um, Jesus Christ uh, before others. Obviously, those, that kind of persistent is really not a... The person like that is not really a believer at all. But there are some right reasons to delay. Even though we don't see a pattern of delay in the Scripture, I think there, is, there are some right reasons for delay in baptism. And that is that time is needed often to reflect upon the genuineness of one's salvation. That wasn't the case in the early times. The context was very... Um, antagonistic towards the gospel. It was not safe to be a Christian. Remember how the disciples were hidden away in their house for fear of the Jews? So when someone publicly comes out and confesses Jesus Christ as their Lord and Savior, they're going to experience persecution almost immediately. It, it, It is similar in some cultures and countries Today, there is no place to hide if you're a Christian. You, you are going to be found out. So in, in that case, the testing of the faith happens very, very quickly. And that's what happened in, in many of the New Testament times. So the Jews who believed on the, on the day of Pentecost, they were in an unfriendly culture. Even though 3,000 of them believed, there were how many more tens of thousands there that didn't believe? And, and certainly many of the Jewish leaders didn't believe. And they weren't certain of what would happen. And we know the persecution that came later that caused them to scatter. So when, when there's not a opportunities for our faith, for faith to be tested, it is wise sometimes to, to delay baptism, not too long, but long enough for that faith to be uh, shown as true. And that is especially true in children. recently did a, a talk on evangelizing children, but I just want to highlight some things from that. It is extremely difficult to recognize genuine salvation in children. Rather than rushing them into baptism after an initial profession, it is wiser to take an opportunity to interact with them and wait for more significant evidence of lasting commitment. Even if a child can say enough in a testimony to make it reasonably clear that he understands and embraces the gospel, baptism should wait until he or she manifests evidence of regeneration that is independent of parental control. Right? Children, thankfully, generally want to please their parents. And we need to make sure that what we're seeing is a genuine evidence of the Holy Spirit and not just the child's desire to please their parents, which is really good and helpful, but may not indicate regenerate. Uh, nature. So the, the recommended approach with our children is to wait until a professing child has, has reached a, an appropriate age where, where they can express signs of genuine salvation that's kind of independent of their parents. There's no magic age. Uh, there's no age of accountability um, in this. It, it is simply when, when um, a child expresses faith and and shows evidence of genuinely believing, of evidence of being regenerate. For many children, it may be helpful to wait until the really the teenage years. Um, because baptism is seen as something clear and final, our concern with baptizing children when they're younger is is that they we might baptize them and they really not be saved. And that young children would tend to look at the baptism uh, that experience of baptism as proof of salvation, which it is not. So in the case of an unregenerate child who is baptized, which is not uncommon in our, in our churches today, baptism actually does a child a disservice. It, it leads them to think that they're saved when they're really not. So in, in that case, we, we believe it is better to, to wait 
uh, until the reality to which baptism testifies can be more easily discerned in a, in a child's life. And they, they are not being disobedient to Christ by, by delaying because Christ has said, children, obey your parents in the Lord. So if the parents decide to delay for wise reasons, not to, not to discourage a child, but to uh, take the time needed to see if the child's salvation is, is genuine or not, that, that is um, then um, the, the parent's prerogative and really given that authority by God to, to disciple their children and train their children. So generally, believers should be baptized relatively soon after baptism, but there are times where it's wise uh, to wait. Uh, you don't want to wait forever, don't want to wait too long, uh, because you want to encourage obedience to Christ, but you also don't want to baptize an unbeliever, if at all possible. And remember that none of us, including me, can actually see whether someone's saved or not. I don't have special glasses uh, to see the elect. Um, it'd be easier in ministry if I could, but I, I don't have those. Let's consider question four. Must someone be baptized in order to be saved? I'm going to kind of move quickly, more quickly for this one uh, because of uh, to save some time for the next two questions. Must someone be baptized in order to be saved? Let's just say that, that there are those in, in church history who say that the, that the answer to this is yes, that being the Roman Catholic Church and largely the Lutheran Church. There may be others. Those are just examples. And there are some scriptures that at first seem to indicate that baptism is necessary. For example, in Acts 2, 38, Peter said to them, Repent and let each of you be baptized in the name of Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of your sins, and you'll receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. And in 1 Peter chapter 3, verse 21, um, Peter writes there, Baptism now saves you. So if you just kind of pull these out of their context, it seems to suggest... Um, that there is some kind of close connection between regeneration, salvation, and baptism. But when properly understood, these scriptures are not teaching this and and legitimately cannot be used to teach this. Paying careful attention to the immediate context and the larger context of scripture, we learn that no verse of, of scripture teaches that baptism is necessary for salvation. For example, in Acts 2.41, in that same context, we see Peter commands baptism because those who responded to the preaching of the gospel had received his word and then were baptized. Um, and as I mentioned just previously, uh, to, to publicly profess faith in Christ in Jerusalem was not at all popular or safe. So it was really part of the test of repentance that Peter was giving to these Jews, many of whom may have been Involved may have been the very crowds that were demanding Jesus be crucified not so long ago from their point of view. Uh, by examining the context of 1 Peter 3.21, we can understand that Peter is not talking about water baptism. This is where I told you earlier that, that when we fail to distinguish between spirit baptism and water baptism, it leads to confusion about baptism. So 1 Peter 3.21 isn't talking about water baptism. He specifically mentions not the, the, the cleansing of the body um, at, at, at all. So just, just to read that uh, to you, 1 Peter 3, 3.21, because the context itself, if we're just careful there, um, helps us to understand this. 1 Peter 3.21 says this, corresponding to that, referring to how God preserved Noah, uh, through the construction of the ark, through the flood. He says, corresponding to that, baptism now saves you, not the removal of dirt from the flesh, 
but an appeal to God for a good conscience through the resurrection of Jesus Christ, who is at the right hand of God, having gone into heaven after angels and authorities and powers had been subjected to him. He's not talking about water baptism, even though he uses the analogy of the flood. He's talking about spirit baptism there, not water baptism. So when properly understood, there is no scripture that, that connects uh, baptism with any kind of grace or that is conferred through uh, baptism or that is needed for salvation. And at the same time, we recognize that any time we study a passage, like if you were studying First, First Peter 3.21, and you came upon that passage that says that salvation that saves you and you weren't sure what it meant, you have to always consider the larger context of Scripture. So if we're studying scripture and it seems to contradict something else, it means that we haven't interpreted something correctly. Because rightly understood, no passage of scripture is ever going to contradict another portion of scripture. So the larger context you could, you could turn to are passages like this in Ephesians 2, 8, 9. It says, For by grace you have been saved through faith, and not not of yourselves. It is the gift of God, not as a result of works, so that no one may boast. And in support of this, we could stack up many other passages from Scripture that talk about how salvation is by faith and faith in Christ alone. It's not by works, anything that we do. And baptism would be included in that. So the examples of Scripture, of baptism, are are that that people profess faith and are saved prior to baptism. There are some examples where, where, where we're shown that Salvation occurs prior to baptism, or in, the, in, in one case, the person wasn't even baptized, but we know that they were saved. Right? The thief on the cross, who, who though he was hurling insults, he began that day hurling insults at Christ, then when he saw all that went on, expressed faith in Christ, and Christ told him, promised him, today you'll be with me in paradise. There's no, no opportunity for baptism. You could say, well, that's a, an exception, and okay, it's an exception. But it is something that's included in Scripture. Baptism is not necessary for salvation. Let's move on to question five. What is the meaning and significance of water baptism? Well, some say that water baptism, that baptism is a means of saving grace. This view believes that the act of baptism conveys actual grace to the person baptized. This, this belief is also known as baptismal regeneration. It flows with what we were just talking about, whether, it's, whether one is, uh, needs to be baptized to be saved or not. This view would say yes. So this view is held by Roman Catholicism as well as Lutherans. For Roman Catholics, the very act of back, baptism itself conveys grace. You don't even have to exercise faith. Faith is not necessary. The act itself is sufficient. If it's done a, a, properly and according by a priest then the act itself is necessary. Um, It is self-sufficient, so to speak, in in that regard. And because, according to Roman Catholic doctrine, baptism is necessary for salvation and does not need to be accompanied by faith, then even infants should be baptized. And that that gets right down to the heart of it. So in Roman Catholic doctrine, baptism is self-sufficient and works to bring the washing of regeneration by the act of a priest baptizing someone. Right? And, and one of the reasons that they baptize infants is because they teach that unbaptized infants can't go to heaven. They don't necessarily go to hell, but there's this like 
like uh, a place between that. They don't experience the joys of heaven. They don't experience the, the pains of hell either. They're just kind of like in limbo. Right? So they baptize all the infants, thinking that that's going to assure that the infant can gain entrance into heaven. Beloved, if it did, we'd do it, right? Because I want all the children to be saved. But it doesn't, and it leads to confusion, and it leads to people thinking that they're saved and going to heaven when they are not. And, and the Lutherans aren't much better. The Lutherans teach this, and, and um, they, they confuse what Paul is saying in Romans 6. They see what Paul's uh, saying in Romans 6, and I'll just, just read it together so we have that in, in our mind. Uh, Romans 6, first 11 verses. They, they see Romans 6 is talking about water baptism, when, when that is not what Paul is talking about. Romans 6, I'll read that to you, verses 1 to 11. What shall we say then? Are we to continue in sin so that grace may increase? May it never be. How shall we who died to sin still live in it? Or do you not know that all of us who have been baptized into Christ Jesus have been baptized into his death? So that, that's a key, key verse there. Do you not know that all of us who have been baptized into Christ have Jesus have been baptized into his death. So they see that, that unification of the believer in Christ occurring at water baptism. Well, I'll make the argument, and I think the context makes the argument, this isn't talking about water baptism. This is talking about spirit baptism. And Paul continues, said, Therefore we have been buried with him through baptism into death, so that as Christ was raised from the dead through the glory of the Father, so we too might walk in newness of life. For if we become united with him in the likeness of his death, certainly we shall also be in the likeness of his resurrection. Knowing this, that our old self was crucified with him in order that the body of sin might be done away with, so that we would no longer be slaves to sin, for he who has died is freed from sin. Now if we have died with Christ, we believe that we shall also live with him, knowing that Christ, having been raised from the dead, is never to die again. Death no longer is master over him. For, death, for the death that he died, he died to sin once for all, but the life that he lives, he lives to God. Even so, consider yourselves to be dead to sin, but alive to God in Christ Jesus. So the larger context is just that, about fighting sin and considering yourself dead to sin. But in, in arguing that, Paul teaches us very, something that is very important. That in baptism, that is spirit baptism, there is a unification of the believer with Christ in his death, burial, and resurrection. So Lutherans look at, at Romans 6 and, and say that's talking about water baptism. So baptism is necessary, but yet at the same time, they understand that faith is necessary for salvation. After all, Luther preached that vehemently, that faith is, 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 is the instrument that God uses to save. So there seems to be a little bit of disconnect. So um, this leaves Lutherans in, a, in an awkward theological Position as Millard Erickson highlights in his uh, systematic theology. He says there, Lutheran theologians are aware of the charge of inconsistency between the practice of infant baptism and the insistence on justification by faith alone. To deal with this dilemma, they propose several possible solutions. One is that those who are baptized possess an unconscious faith. You know, the, the infant has a faith. It's just not expressed. It's there, but there's just no way for it to be expressed. But I would argue that a faith unexpressed is no faith at all. James argues that, you know, that genuine faith is going to be revealed by some kind of fruit. Another possibility, they say, is that the faith of the parents, or even when the parents are unwilling, the faith of the church, 
uh, can, can stand in lieu of the child's faith. And so therefore, it's, a, it's truly a, a legitimate baptism. But just remember, beloved, that, that scriptures say salvation is a gift. If it's a gift, then baptism is not necessary for salvation, um, since that would make it a work or requirement to meet. And, and certainly saying that the infant has unconscious faith, or that the parents can exercise saving faith on behalf of the infant, are both, uh, and I say this with respect, ridiculous ideas that are foreign to the scriptures. They're just absolutely foreign. It's an invention uh, to, of man to try to justify a practice that was going on. Another view of baptism says that baptism is a sign and seal of the new covenant. This is the view of our Reformed and Presbyterian brothers, who sisters who dearly hold to um, salvation and faith alone and Christ alone. Those who hold to this view um, see quite a bit of continuity between the Old Testament covenants and the New Testament fulfillment of the new covenant. This continuity extends to the near unification of Old Testament Israel and the New Testament church. So even in some cases, the, they would say the church replaces Israel. And even some of the pastors who, who, who hold to this would say that they really Israel, they refer to Israel as the church. So it wasn't Moses leading Israel through the wilderness, it was Moses leading the church through Israel. That's how, how much unity they see between the Old uh, and New Testament. So this, this uh, continuity that they see um, helps them to, to, to um, confuse the, the sign of circumcision that we find in the Old Testament, in the Old Testament covenants, as being um, replaced by baptism in the New Covenant. So that's one of the key developments uh, with that. So they would say that, that in the Old Testament, believers... Israel, males, were called to be circumcised. But now in the New Covenant, the sign of the New Covenant is baptism. So they, they pull this um, maneuver where baptism replaces circumcision. So explain it. Um, it they, they see baptism then as a means of initiation into the covenant and as a sign of salvation. Charles Hodge, who held to this view, explained it this way. And I quote, God, on his part, promises to grant the benefits signified in baptism to all adults who receive that sacrament in the exercise of faith and to all infants who, when they arrive at maturity, remain faithful to the vows made in their name when they were baptized, unquote. Right? So it's a, it's a really it's a means of initiation into this covenant. But beloved, uh, under, emphasizing that the benefits of initiation in the covenant, understand that they are teaching, um, they're teaching something that Scripture does not itself teach. We won't deny that in some passages there is a there is a relationship between circumcision and baptism, but there's a greater circumcision of which that that is being linked here, and and not the. Um, the actual right of circumcision. We would say that the right of circumcision faded away not to be replaced by baptism, but the physical circumcision faded away to be replaced by spiritual circumcision, that circumcision of the heart, which God, uh, which the scriptures talk about um, frequently. Talking about regeneration. So understand that scripture does not ever say that baptize, baptism replaces circumcision. Um, 
that there is a, a legitimate argument that circumcision has been replaced by something, but it's, again, it's, it's not water baptism, it's spiritual circumcision. And there's no command that infants be baptized or to somehow think that by baptizing them, it brings them some kind of blessing into God's covenant in, in the same way that, that, um, that Israel was blessed by a covenant. It even took faith. Not all who were physically of Israel were of Israel. So the biblical pattern that we see consistently in the New Testament is that, that followers were, were baptized into Jesus' name implying that infants couldn't express that kind of faith and belief. So the, the third main view of baptism, and the one that we hold, is that baptism is a symbol of salvation for believers. Baptism is a symbol for believers. Baptism is not merely a sign. It's a symbol. Um, there's, there's a small technical difference. A, a sign could be like a stop sign. We've learned what to do because we've been taught. When you see a stop sign, you need to stop. A, a symbol is something more like a railroad crossing sign. The railroad crossing sign itself not only tells you to stop, but it's actually in the form of a crossing. Um, we've driven by it so much you may not even pay attention to it, but it's got two lines crossing. represents the fact that you have the straight railroad track and the road, and they're crossing together. So it, it's not only a sign, it's a symbol of what's there. There is a crossing. So baptism is, baptism is not merely a sign of our unity with Christ. It is a symbol of that unity, of, of new life in Christ. We would hold that baptism doesn't confer any grace in the act itself. It does not bring about regeneration, nor does it initiate one into God's covenantal family. <coughs> Excuse me. Baptism is a symbol for believers, and hence this view is also known as believer's baptism. Baptism is a symbol of the reality of spirit baptism, which Paul speaks about in Romans 6, which we read in verses 1 to 11. <coughs> spirit baptism connects us to and identifies us with Jesus Christ and his death, burial, and resurrection. Water baptism cannot do that. Water baptism symbolizes that, but it cannot do that. As, as Miller Erickson points out, he says, baptism then is an act of faith and a testimony that one has been united with Christ in his death and resurrection, that one has experienced spiritual circumcision. So baptism is a symbol of our unity with Christ, but baptism is also a public declaration of faith in and allegiance to Jesus Christ. Uh, we need to understand that, that, that baptism is an opportunity for public profession of faith in Jesus Christ. In, in his book, um, which is entitled a, a Biblical Critique of Infant Baptism, Matt Waymeyer Matt notes this. He said, The implication is that one became a disciple... Um, of the, <coughs> sorry, of the person with whom his baptism is associated. In this way, baptism served as an outward expression of allegiance either to either John the Baptist or Jesus when an individual became a disciple of one another. These baptisms in the name of Jesus were prior to the cross and resurrection of Jesus. Baptisms in the name of Jesus were prior to the cross and resurrection of Jesus, but nonetheless served the same purpose as the baptisms after the cross and resurrection of Jesus. 
Namely, baptism serves as a means by which a repentant sinner declares his allegiance to the person of Jesus Christ. Now, we see this clearly, I think, um, in uh, 1 Corinthians 1. If you just turn there with me, 1 Corinthians 1. Which is not a, a, a passage that uh, is really teaching about uh, baptism per se, but there's something to be learned here. 1 Corinthians 1, verse 13. Again, um, begin at verse 11 to pick up some of the context. For I have been informed concerning you, my brethren, by Chloe's people, that there are quarrels among you. No, I mean this. Each one of you is saying, I am of Paul, I am of Apollos, I am of Cephas, I am of Christ. Has Christ been divided? Paul was not crucified for you, was he? Or Watch this. Or were you baptized in the name of Paul? I thank God that I baptized none of you except Crispus and Gaius, so that no one would say you were baptized in my name. So Paul didn't emphasize, didn't actually do a lot of baptisms, for he was afraid of this very thing, that people would identify with him more than they identify with Christ. And there was this disunity going on within the body of, of Christ at Corinth. What this shows us, it's, it's, it's biblical proof that baptism was a way to publicly declare allegiance in the person's name in whom you were baptized, which un, helps us understand why is it that Christ commanded us to be, na- to be baptized in the name of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. You are declaring allegiance to the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. So they were baptized, the the believers were not baptized in the name of Paul, they were baptized in the name of Jesus. They were disciples of Jesus, not disciples of Paul. And as as Matt Waymeyer notes, he says this, quote, this casual allusion to the practice of being baptized in a person's name indicates that this baptismal formula, being baptized in someone's name, was well known to the Corinthian believers as a means of declaring personal allegiance. He goes on to note that to be baptized in the name of Christ then was a public declaration that one uh, that being baptized was transferring allegiance from the person uh, from themselves to the person of Christ, expressing a commitment to live as his disciple. Right. Well, just just briefly, uh, uh, unfortunately, I don't have much time to cover this last question, but I think it's important that we at least highlight it. And that, that question is this. Is there a biblical mode of baptism? Is there a biblical mode of baptism? I'll try to cover this very quickly. The word baptism is now an English word that we understand at referring to water baptism, generally. But understand the word baptism, it comes from the Greek, and it was, it was not translated from Greek into English. It was transliterated. Transliterate, tr- transliterate means that when you come across a word, that you take the Greek letter and put the English letter with it. So you just do that. Like an example of that, we would do that with names. For example, uh, the Greek word Christos, right? Sounds like what? Christ, and it is. So that's transliterated. We don't, trans, we don't translate names. You transliterate names because they're names. Um, for example, Paulos. Who do you think that sounds like? Paulos is Paul, right? So the, the, the idea is there, you just take the Greek letter, put an English letter with it, and bring it into the translation. So John Wycliffe, the father of the English Bible, who produced the first handwritten English Bible in, in 1380 AD, transliterated the word. He did not translate it. 
and all the major English translations since him has followed his example. A huge question remains, why did the translators transliterate the word instead of translating it? Now, understand first that the word baptism in Greek, the definition was well known. Right? It's not, it wasn't like something that was a mystery. The word is fairly easy to translate. If we look in any biblical Greek English dictionary, um, it, it'll point to this. The main idea, the primary meaning of the word baptism means to dip into something or to dip into dye or to immerse. Like to take a piece of fabric and, and immerse it into uh, a solution to dye it, to change its color. To dip something in, into something uh, is another way of saying immersion. Now, even the, the staunch kind of the covenantal Baptist position, John Calvin, said, said this, the very word baptize signifies to immerse. And this is his words from the Institutes of Christian Religion, and it is certain that immersion was the practice of the ancient church, unquote. Pretty telling. There are others that argue baptism is connected with ceremonial washings. For example, J. Adams would hold this position. But in all due respect, while there's a connection with the washing, right, symbolized by cleanliness that comes with the water, it is not the main significance, as we've highlighted in the text that we've looked at prior to this. The main purpose of baptism is not cleansing, not demonstration of the cleansing, but, but uh, not, not to negate that, but building on that, it's to, the symbol of unity with Christ and an opportunity to pro- publicly profess Jesus Christ, to identify him and to declare your allegiance to him. There, there are secondary meanings to the word baptism that talk about um, bathing uh, in the sense of, of uh, washing, um, but the primary meaning is that of immersion, so why did uh, someone like John Wycliffe transliterate the word? Here's where you have to um, allow me to, to, to dabble in um, sanctified speculation. So this is not the scriptures. This is just my opinion. Okay? Put yourself in the political context that John Wycliffe was in. He was a wanted man. He had a price on his head. There were people who were hunting him out to kill him. You know that if you taught your children the Lord's Prayer in English, you too would be hunted by the English church. They would have hunted you. It was illegal to teach your children, even if you were English, to teach them the Lord's Prayer in English. That's the kind of political environment you're in. There were people who supported John Wycliffe financially so he could translate the scriptures. That's the only way he could live. And there was a common practice within the church of baptizing infants. My speculation, and beloved, that's just what it is, my speculation is that John Wycliffe did not want to challenge the, the, the practice of infant baptism. If he translated the word, immerse, it would have caused a firestorm within even his supporters that may have ended his translation work. We might not have ever had an English Bible, uh, as, at least as early as he translated. Now, it is, it's speculation. 
But beloved, if the word itself meant sprinkle or meant pour, he could have translated the word to that and no one at the time would have batted an eye. Would not have batted an eye. If he said, I want you to be sprinkled or I want water to be poured on you, it would have been no difficulty for Wycliffe to translate the verse that way. So I surmise that the reason he transliterated it instead of translating it was because of the political circumstances he chose not to fight that battle. Because there were so many other battles going on. I don't fault him. I'm just trying to explain what I think happened. There were so many battles going on that that's one he chose not to fight. Again, that's my um, understanding, my uh, sanct- uh, speculation as to why it was transliterated when there was a perfectly good definition immersed that he could have used. So in summary, we'll say this, that, that in the New Testament, um, the verbs baptize could be translated with the word immerse. immerse. And if you want to do this, you, you can get a concordance and look at the word baptize and baptism and every time you see the word baptize or baptism, again, we want to make sure that we're talking, consider whether we're talking about water baptism or spirit baptism, you can go through there and, and do it yourself, do a little study, put a blank there. Instead of the word baptize, take that out. And it's either got to be immerse, dip, uh, sorry, immerse, or sprinkle, or pour. Right? So that's the only, the only ones that can like fit in the word meaning. And you can do that yourself. You can go do a word study and, and see what word meaning fits the context the best. Because in the end, the, the meaning of the word um, baptism isn't going to be solved by a dictionary. It's going to be solved by the context. And in some cases, we're not given much context. But, but in other cases, we are. Like in the, in the case of the uh, Ethiopian eunuch, where they saw water. Okay, even though it was a desert road, and people make the case, well, there couldn't have been much water there. Well, okay, I recognize it was a desert road. God perhaps supernaturally provided some water for this. But if it were just simply a matter of sprinkling or pouring, certainly the Ethiopian eunuch had a water bottle, carried water with him. They wouldn't be on a desert road without some kind of water. So, the, so there's, good, there's good evidence in the scriptures to believe the, that immersion is the biblical uh, mode of baptism. And so that's what we practice um, if, if someone were to ever, uh, if an, an adult who was definitely believing in Christ and had been baptized as a believer in some other mode um, I, I, and wanted to join our church, this is not something to divide over. So um, I'm trying to present to you is the biblical case is that of immersion, which is why that we practice immersion. So these six crucial questions that teach us about the biblical view of baptism. Why is baptism important? Uh, who should be baptized? When should believers in Jesus Christ be baptized? Must someone be baptized in order to be saved? What is the meaning of the significance of water baptism? And is there a biblical mode of baptism? All help us to, to understand the biblical teaching about baptism. And I'll just conclude with saying that if, the, if you have any questions, a lot of these I had to touch on uh, quickly. And for some of you, you probably thought he didn't touch on it quickly enough. But anyway, if you have questions, please uh, don't hesitate to, uh, to ask me. Um, I'd be glad to, to explain more. 
Okay, let's pray together. Our Lord and our God, we just want to rejoice in your name that you have saved us. As we're talking about baptism, it's really a, a symbol of what you have done in uniting us with Christ in his death, burial, and resurrection. And Lord God, as we soon will hear three testimonies of faith in you, we just want to thank you for your work in their lives and that you would help them uh, to walk in obedience, help them to um, just to give glory to your name and what you have done in saving them and uh, to drawing them uh, to yourself. Lord, help us to submit ourselves to the authority of the Word of God, even if it conflicts with what we've been, the traditions with what we've been raised and challenges our, our thinking on this, and just ask that you would uh, cause each believer who is here this morning, Lord God, to be obedient to your word and to to be baptized if they haven't already. It's in the name of Jesus we pray. Amen.